Tonight we are beginning our study here in the book of 1 Samuel, working our way through the Bible. The book of 1 Samuel really depicts a transition period in the history of the nation of Israel. It's where the the nation is moving from a theocracy to a monarchy. However, at this particular time, they really weren't following after God as their king. You might see that say that really they were moving to an anarchy because several times in the book of Judges, we are told that every man did what was right in his own eyes. That was the thing that really marked the nation at that particular time. But first Samuel depicts this transition period where the nation will no longer be ruled by judges, but they're going to be moving into that period where they're going to be ruled by kings. And 1 Samuel not only recounts this eventful time in the history of Israel, but it's an eventful history that is interwoven with the biographies of three colorful personalities. In chapters 1 through 7, we're going to meet Samuel and we're going to see uh, his life. And then in chapters 8 through 15, we'll be introduced to Saul, Israel's first king. Samuel being their first prophet, Saul being their first king. And then we see in chapters 16 through 31, David, Israel's greatest king, aside from Jesus Christ. And the book really centers around those three individuals, but interwoven through their stories, which all overlap, are the accounts of many other characters from which we learn some valuable life lessons. Lessons on such things like loyalty. Lessons on such things like friendship. Lessons on such things like love and the dangers of bitterness and foolishness and many other things that are laid out that we'll see as we go through the pages of this book and then on into Second Samuel where, where we see all of these different stories and all these different characters and all these different people that, that as we go through, we're going to be able to identify with. That we're going to be able to look at and say, you know what, gosh, you know, my situation is so much like that guy's or that gal's. And, and, and through that, we learn so much through these life lessons of the people we see in the pages of Scripture. We start with Samuel. We read here in verse 1, it says, Now there was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophon, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf." And Ephraimite. Why couldn't they have names like Bill and Joe and, you know. But now it was during this time that the Philistines were, were gaining power there in the area of Israel. And the Philistines strengthened themselves not merely by the constant influx of immigrants, but by an importation of arms from Greece. And so they were very fastly reducing the people of Israel into a subject kind of race. The Philistines, they, they wanted to take over. And it was at this strategic time and place that God begins his plan, as he almost always does, with a person, with a man or with a woman that he is going to use, that he is going to rise up at this particular time for his people. And it's interesting when you think about this, because God, you know, he he could use or he could do it all by himself. He doesn't need us. 
He could use angels or he could accomplish his task through many other means. But the way that he seems to always work or so often work in the scriptures is kind of his his normal way of doing things is he works through people. He works through men and women that that he raises up. And at this particular time, that's what he's doing. Now, in first Chronicles, chapter six and verses twenty six and seven in the genealogies there is given, we, we find that Samuel or really his father, Elkanah, is of the Levitical tribe of Koath. And they lived in one of the Levitical cities of Ephraim. And so they were called an Ephraimite because that's the area that they came from, but they were from the tribe of Levi. They were of the family of Koath. Now, this is important, an important thing to note, because some people have had problems as they read through 1 Samuel with the fact that Samuel offers sacrifices. And they say, wait a second, you know, why is he doing that? That's only something that was to be done by the Levites, that was to be done by the priesthood. But we, we see there, and it's, I, I note this because there in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, we note that all, he was in the tribe of Ephraim, or excuse me, if he was in the tribe of Ephraim, he wouldn't be able to offer those sacrifices. But it wasn't that he was in the tribe of Ephraim, but he was just living in that region of Ephraim. But he was of the tribe of Levi, living in one of those Levitical cities there in Ephraim. Thus, he was called an Ephraimite. But in reality, he was from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Koath. So that really is Elkanah's background that Samuel's going to come out of. We pick it up in verse 2. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peniah or Penaiana. And Peniana had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, in those days, polygamy was practiced, and this man Elkanah, was one who practiced it. It was common. He had two wives. The name of the first was Hannah in Hebrew. Her name in English, it translates to mean grace. The second wife, her name, Penenia, whose name in English translates to pearl. So this guy had grace for one wife, pearl for the other wife. But I want you to note that polygamy was never something that God condoned. It was never something that he condoned. But when you see it in the pages of scriptures, it's not that God is saying it's okay. He's just mentioning it as a historical fact that it existed, that it was something that was prevalent in that culture. It's not that he's putting his stamp of approval on it. In fact, the Bible clearly points out time and time again, the problems that go along with polygamy. Friend of mine said to me once on this particular subject of polygamy, he says, I don't get it. He says, I, I don't understand it. He says, you know, I, I don't understand why anybody would be interested in having more than one wife. He said, it takes all the energy that I have and all the grace of God that, that, that he can give to please just one woman, to take care of one woman. Why would I want to have another, you know? And I think that there's, Truth to that, for most of us guys who are married that would say, you know what, man, one is enough. It's wonderful, but one's enough, you know. So 
polygamy was not something that God put his stamp of approval on. It wasn't something that he blessed. In fact, we, we read, I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy that he says one of the things he told kings not to do was to multiply horses and to multiply wives, to multiply women. In fact, too many of the kings disregarded that. So often when the Bible mentions polygamy, it shows the pain. It shows the misery. It shows the, the sorrow that goes along with a man trying to please more than one woman. And the problems that occur when you have two women who are trying to compete for one man's attention and one man's affection. Now, husbands, I want you to take note of this. Don't ever give your wife a moment's opportunity to feel as though she has to compete for your affection or your attention. Don't give her a moment's opportunity with any other person or any other thing that she's having to compete with your attention or with your affection. She needs to know that she is your treasure. That she's your treasure. She needs to understand that. So Elkanah had two wives, Pearl had children, but Grace had no children. And according to that culture, the primary duty of a wife was to raise up a son, to produce a son for her husband. And at that particular time, barrenness was seen as a curse from God. Later on, according to the Jewish tradition, a list was drawn up of those who wouldn't enter heaven. A Jewish man who didn't have a wife was on that list. And so was a Jewish woman or wife who had no children. In some circles, still to this very day, being barren is considered grounds for divorce. So here's Hannah, Grace. She's married to this guy, but here's her problem. She, she can't produce a son. She can't produce a child. And in the face of her bitterness, Hannah also faced competition from her husband's other wife, Pearl. We pick it up in verse 3. It says, this man went up from the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that the name the Lord of hosts is used. It's used 281 times in the scriptures, but this is the first. And this idea of the Lord of hosts carries with it the idea of the Lord of the mighty armies. He's the Lord of, of the mighty armies, the Lord of hosts. Now, Shiloh was at that time the religious center. That's where the tabernacle was placed, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so this was the place there in Shiloh where worship took place. And they were going to Shiloh each year to worship the Lord at the feast. So it was a yearly thing that they would venture up there to Shiloh. Now, this was a time that was really meant to be a time of celebration. It was to be a, a time of worship. It was to be a, a, a wonderful time for the people of Israel. But instead for Hannah, this was a difficult time. It was a hard time. We read on, it says, and also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord were there. We'll learn more about them next week. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, or Pearl, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. But he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. 
And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. And therefore she wept and did not eat. Here we see another one of those passages where polygamy is seen as a problem. That there's always, when you have two women, there's always a favorite and there's always a rival. And that's what we have here. Elkanah loves Hannah. His other wife, Pearl, though, she can tell. It's like Jacob with his wife, Rachel and Leah. Leah knew that she wasn't the favorite. There was always problems. There was always difficulties that took place in that. And Pearl took it out on Hannah. And this is so sad. Every year when Elkanah would take his family up to Shiloh to worship, Pearl would use it as an opportunity to tease and taunt Hannah. So here was this time that should have been a time of great blessing, a time to look forward to, a time of celebration, a wonderful time for this family. Instead, it was a time that was miserable for Hannah. Because of the teasing, because of the taunting. And I think that this can happen today as well in the body of Christ. Listen close. I think that this can still happen today. You see, we come here to church and we come looking forward to meeting with the family of God. We come here looking forward to meeting with God and to meet with his people. And it should be a time of excitement. It should be a time of celebration. It should be a time of worship and wonder that we come together. All these different people from different backgrounds and different places and and different social standings and different ethnic groups. And we come together here into this place and we have one thing in common and it's the Lord. It's such a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing as we come together in that type of way. But but it can often become a time that is difficult for some people in the family of God who feel or who can be made to feel like they are second class Christians because maybe they've been divorced. And so they come and they feel like they've got this stigma over them because they've been divorced And sometimes they can feel like everybody kind of looks at them, you know, that they're kind of weird or, you know, that type of thing. Or they can come and and there can be that sense of of stigma again in their heart. And maybe nothing's even said, but because they're a single parent. And they feel like, you know, gosh, I'm just so different. I don't. I don't fit in. Or maybe just because they're single, period. They're, they're not married yet. And they can be made to feel like they are second-class Christians. And I think we need to watch that, that we avoid that very thing. As a pastor, I've, I've had to learn. I've had to learn to be mindful of the different types of people who are here on any given time when we gather together. To be mindful of the fact that there are people who are in those categories. That's, that's, that's their, their season in their life right now. You know, it's very easy for me to talk to those of you who are married. Because that's the majority of you. And I've been married for going on 18 years. And it's something I'm very, I enjoy a lot and I'm very comfortable with. And it's easy for me to kind of relate the word in that type of way. But I've had to learn. 
that there's a whole other population. There's brothers and sisters here that that's not their lot in life right now. That's not the season that they're in. And they and, and, and we need to watch. We need to watch. We need to be mindful of those brothers and sisters in our fellowship who who are in that place. That we don't make them feel that way. And I, I love it. When I hear about in our in our home groups that there are, you know, single people that are going to, you know, some of our home groups and and most of the people there are married, but they go and they feel welcome and they feel loved and they feel a part of that home fellowship that they're, you know, involved in. And, and I just I applaud those of you in those home groups who have welcomed in those single brothers and sisters and have made them feel apart and made them come to that place of realizing that they're a vital part of our fellowship. And that they're in a very unique time in their lives where where God is wanting to do something in them, but also through them, through for some of them, the freedom that they have in their singleness. So for Hannah, every year, this was a, a this trip was a difficult one. Because she was teased and taunted. And then we pick it up in verse 8. It says, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Elkanah's response here blesses me. Because he shows a deep concern for his wife. And what he's doing here is he's trying to let her know, look, you're special to me. You are special to me. I love you. He's trying to let her know that all that matters is, I don't care that you don't have a son. I don't care that you don't have children. We have each other. And that's what matters. He wanted her to know that she was special to him. And guys, those of you who are married, have you done that lately for your bride? Have you done something lately to make her feel like and know she's special to you? Another quick question, fellows, have you added to her insecurities? And most women have them over various things. Have you added to her insecurities or subtracted from them by your behavior and your words and your actions? Elkanah here is trying to to comfort his wife and to let her know just how special that she was to him. We pick it up in verse nine. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now, Eli, the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Hannah had many problems. Maybe you can relate to her tonight. Maybe you came here. You've got many problems. She she had a husband whose heart was divided. Her home, instead of being a place of refuge, was a place of trial. Her hope had been disappointed. Yet in all of these things, Hannah did the right things. She wept. She prayed. And she committed that whole situation to the Lord. Guys, folks, church, that's the right move. In the midst of your difficulties, we need to do what Hannah did. 
She wept, she prayed, she committed that situation to the Lord. And you see, that's where we're going to find the sympathetic understanding that we need because we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that our Lord is a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every single way as we are yet without sin. In other words, Jesus knows what you're going through. He's walked in your sneakers, you know, so to speak. He's been there. He's that high priest and he bids us, he, he encourages us to, to come before his throne room boldly, not timidly, but knowing that we're welcome, knowing that his ear is, his ear is open, that his heart reaches out, his heart goes out. We have a high priest who can sympathize us. We have a God who says he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. And we're told in the book of James that he is the giver of wisdom to those who ask. That he gives it liberally, freely to those who need it. Hannah does the right thing. She goes to the Lord with her need. Verse 11, then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Here we see that Hannah's next move is that she makes a vow. Hannah promises her son to the work of the Lord, vowing that he will be a Nazarite for his whole life. Now, this is interesting because you see any child who was born or this child that she would have any child that she male child that she would have that that was born would be a Levite being from that tribe. And so automatically, especially being the firstborn, he would be dedicated unto the Lord because God regarded the tribe of Levi as his own special possession. But the time of the Levite's special dedication to the Lord, it was limited. It was a 20 year time frame that started when the Levite was 30 and ended when he was 50. And you see what 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 Hannah is doing here is that she was taking something that already belonged to the Lord. And I want you to hear this. She's taking something that already belonged to the Lord and she's giving it to him. But in a greater sense, she's giving it to him in a greater way. Samuel would have the special consecration upon him as a Levite, which was a greater consecration than that, or excuse me, as a Nazarite, which was a greater consecration than that of the Levite. And he would be committed unto the Lord for his whole life. Not just a certain time period, but forever. His whole life. So she's making this vow and she's saying, Lord, I know that he would already be yours for that time period. But I want you to know that if you bless me, if you give me this child, I'll I'll give him to you forever. I'll give him to you wholly and completely for for his whole life. Now, it would have been easy for Hannah to say, I don't need to dedicate the child to the Lord because he's already dedicated. But the Lord was interested and taking her into a deeper dedication. He was seeking to draw out of her a deeper dedication in her walk with the Lord. And I ask you tonight, is he seeking to do the same thing in your life? 
Is he seeking to draw out of you a deeper dedication? Is he seeking to take you into a deeper commitment to him in your life? You know, this very child would be the instrument that God was going to use to get his people back on track, to get his people back looking to him. And that's what God does. He he raises up a man. Now, we read in the book of Ezekiel when God's judgment was coming upon the nation because of their sin. God was wanting to stall that judgment. They needed to be judged because they had rebelled against the Lord. And so God said there in Ezekiel, and I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap and who would fill in the hedge. But I found none. And therefore, my judgment had to come. It's a sad story in the history of Israel that that God, he was looking for a man, but he couldn't find one. Somebody who could stand in the gap, somebody who would intercede, someone who would stand between the people and the judgment of God that was coming upon them. But he couldn't find one. And so the judgment came. And I wonder how many times in history. That scenario has been repeated where God is seeking for a man. Who would fully dedicate his life to the purposes and the plan of God. And how many times has that plan came up short because there wasn't a man. Here God was looking again for a man and he found a woman, a woman who was willing to dedicate her son. If God would answer that prayer and and, and give her a son, that she would give that son to the Lord, that he might be that man. That God would use in the life of his people. Verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now, again, Eli was the priest. Now, Hannah spoke in her heart, but only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought that she was drunk. And so Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your put your wine away from you. Now, this gives you some insight into the the moral decay that was a part of the times. I mean, here's the priest in the temple seeing a woman pouring out her heart unto God. But it was such an unusual sight to him to see a woman doing that, that he doesn't think she's praying. He thinks she's drunk. Which leads me to believe that maybe that was the practice of some of the women as they would come to the feast, that they would, you know, have a little bit too much to drink and they'd kind of get carried away. And so he was kind of used to seeing that type of behavior. And so he sees Hannah. She's coming. I mean, she's just pouring her heart out to the Lord. She's weeping. She's praying. She's moving her mouth, but no words are coming out. And he thinks, oh, she must be one of those drunk ones that come in here sometimes. Tells her to put away her booze. Eli does something here. He jumps to the wrong conclusion. And listen again, close. Especially those of you who are involved in ministry. We also can jump to the wrong conclusions when it comes to people. When it comes to situations, because so often We can have our own preconceived ideas about them or about their situations. We can look at someone's maybe outward appearance. And at first glance, 
we can look at them and maybe think that they're carnal. We can look at them and maybe think that, you know, they're, they're not really serious uh, uh, about the Lord. We can make that same mistake that, that Eli did. I wonder, it wouldn't surprise me, because we are sinners, but it wouldn't surprise me, and I don't even know if he's in here tonight, I don't want to embarrass him, but Matt Tompkins is one of our interns here on staff at the church. He plays uh, bass in the band and drums. If you've seen Matt, he's got tattoos all over his arm. I mean, he's, he's covered. In fact, I remember Matt when he was first saved. And he had a few tattoos. And then, you know, and they were like of these real wicked things, you know. And, uh, and then he got saved. And it's like every single time, almost every other week that he'd come to church, he'd come run up to me, you know, check it out, pastor. And he'd pull up his arm. And he'd have a Christian tattoo now, you know. It's like, check it out. You know, he was so excited. But I wonder if, if there haven't, you know, been some, some that have looked at him and thought, you know, what's the deal with that guy? Can't believe they brought him. You know, I can't believe he's interning. But you know what? Man, that guy has a great heart. And he loves the Lord. And I believe he has a calling on his life that God, you know, wants to use him in his life at some in some way, at some you know particular time. But we can do that. We can look at people sometimes and we can, you know, jump to conclusions. That's why I love Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 16, where Paul says that he sought to know no man after the flesh. In other words, I don't want to see people in their flesh. We talked about this on Sunday, man. If you're looking at the body, you're going to get in trouble. The body's flawed. I don't want to know anyone after the flesh. We want to keep our eyes on the head. In other words, I don't want to see people in their flesh because it's flawed. But I want to see them in Christ. I want to see them in Jesus. Another thing that this reminded me of is I wonder how often we notice someone's wrong behavior. Not that Hannah's behavior was wrong. But how often that we can notice somebody's wrong behavior or somebody's doing something wrong. They've reacted in the wrong way. But we fail to consider the hurt that is in that person's life that's affecting them, that's caused them to react in that way. And we can just be so quick to judge. That's the mistake that Eli makes here thinking Hannah's drunk. But notice her response, verse 15. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. She says, I'm not drunk. I've just been pouring out my soul before the Lord. What a great description of prayer. Pouring out your soul before the Lord. Coming before the Lord and just pouring out your heart. Being real with the Lord. Putting aside the prayer of rote and just coming and saying, God, here I am. When's the last time that you've done that? When's the last time that you've been real with the Lord in that type of way? God responds. 
God responds to that prayer of desperation. We see it in the life of Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter lay at the point where she was dying. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Master, my daughter's about to die. Can you come? And Jesus says, let's go. We see it in the faith of the woman in that same story with the issue of blood who says to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I will be made well. There was that desperation. We see it in the centurion that comes before Jesus because his servant was about ready to die and he loved his servant. And he says, look, you know, my servant's at the point of death. And Jesus says, you know, come on, let's go. And he says, look, you don't even need to come. I know that if you just speak, my servant will be made well. We see it in the heart of the man with the demon-possessed son who came to the disciples, begged them to help him, and they couldn't. And he comes to Jesus and he says, you're all I got. And Jesus says to him, if you just believe, your son will be made well. And he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, the thing that's common in one thing that that every single one of those stories, and we could talk about several others that they had in common, it was this. They were out of options. They were all out of options. So they were desperate. Too many times that's our problem. We have our backup plans. We come before the Lord with our need and it's kind of like, God, here's the situation and here's what I need you to do. But in the back of our mind, we're thinking, if God doesn't work, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to take care of it. I got a plan. We've got our backup plans. When's the last time that you really came to the Lord in that that heart that's poor in spirit? Realizing your utter dependency upon the Lord for everything. That broken heart where you're out of options and you just say, Lord, you're you're all I have. When's the last time that you really poured your heart out like that? Know this, the Lord loves. He loves when we pour our hearts out like that. The broken and contrite heart, he says, I will not despise. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And he said, let your maid, or she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Now note this. Eli gives Hannah this word of encouragement and she takes it as being from the Lord. He says, okay, go. And she's like, all right, God heard me. And notice it says the woman went her way and ate. She hadn't been eating her and her face was no longer sad. Folks, that's faith in action right there. She believed she pours her heart out to the Lord. He answered and then she says, now I'm going to walk in that. Not going to be sad anymore. I'm going to eat. I'm going to go on. I'm going to believe that God is going to answer that prayer. No longer sad, no longer anxious, no longer worried. And then it says in verse nine, then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. She wasn't doing that either. Now she's worshiping. Why? Because she's given it to the Lord. And then they returned and came to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Underline that. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel. Samuel means heard of God. God heard her prayer. 
because I have asked for him from the Lord. God heard her cry. I love that phrase, though. The Lord remembered her. To me, this is such a powerful line. The Lord remembered her. And it wasn't that he had forgotten her. That's not the, the, the idea. God doesn't. He doesn't forget his people. But the idea behind that phrase, the Lord remembered her, is that he allowed his grace to, to, to overshadow her. He allowed his grace to come and shine upon her. And what a, a wonderful blessing to dwell upon. For us tonight to, to dwell upon this. The Lord remembers us. The Lord remembers us. His mercies are new every morning. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He has more grace and more grace. There's an abundance of grace to give to his people. The Lord remembered her. The Lord remembers us. Verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned. They usually wouldn't wean them for two or three years. Then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. She's going to cherish these first few years. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Elkanah here, he's saying, this is great. Okay, go ahead. Take your time. But don't forget what God said. Let him establish his word. And the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls and one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli and said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. And for this child I prayed, and the Lord had granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worshiped the Lord there. How difficult this must have been for Hannah and Elkanah. Their willingness, though, to fulfill their vow, even at great personal cost, is evidence of their godliness. Evidence of their heart for the Lord. The, the phrase there, or the word there in verse 28, lent, means a complete, irrevocable giving up. It wasn't like, here, Lord, you can borrow my son. It's a complete, irrevocable giving up. You know, this is really the basis, this story, for the baby dedications that we do here at the church. It's when a couple stands up here and with their baby and they're saying, Lord, this child is from you and now we're presenting him back to you. We want your hand to be upon him. Now, here's the thing. Those of you who have done the baby dedication thing recently or are going to be doing it. Here's the thing. When you stand up here to offer your child to the Lord when he's two months or two years. That's one thing. But you also need to have that same heart when he's 20 
and he wants to go over, or she wants to go over to the mission field. And it's funny because there, there's, you know, there's been that where some parents, it's like they stand up here and it's like, oh yeah, I'll take our little baby. And then when he's 20, it's like, you know, they're doing everything in their power to keep him home, you know. Don't go. The Bible gives a promise, though. When, when we left for Oregon and we left my mom and dad and my brother and his family and all of our friends here, the thing I held on to was that, that passage there where it says that uh, to the, the man who leaves mother, father, sister, brother for Christ's sake, that he'll be blessed. I think it says like a hundredfold. There's a blessing. And your son or daughters, they're pursuing the call of God upon their life and they're going to, you know, that place. Know this, that that God can use that. And he's going to bless them and you for letting him go. So she gave her son to the Lord and she believed that God would keep her child walking with him. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord, she said. Now notice how this chapter ends. It says, so they worshiped the Lord there. Worship is a repeated characteristic of this family. It's seen in verse 3, verse 19, verse 28. That even in difficult situations, they can worship the Lord praising God for the child that he gave them and as they give the child away, even though that would be easy. They they are doing what what we read about in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, giving a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. That's what they were doing with this son. And it continues on, and we'll pick up here next week in chapter 2, where we see Hannah gives forth this beautiful word of praise, prophetic word of praise, powerful word of praise. Glorifying the Lord and his various attributes. That that heart of worship was just bound up within her. May the Lord do that in our hearts as well. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the examples, Lord, that we see here tonight of Hannah, who knew where to go in the midst of her difficulty, that she ran to you. And in her desperateness, you met her. In her desperate situation, you came alongside of her. We bless you, Lord. Lord, help us to be those that run to you in that way. And for Elkanah, who sought to support his wife and let her know that she was special, Lord, help us as husbands to do that for our wives. And Lord, forgive us for the times that we have been like Eli, jumping to wrong conclusions, judging people. And Lord, for any of us here who are in that place where you are seeking to take them deeper, a deeper dedication. Lord, may we realize, like Hannah, that with that comes great blessing a life given over to you. Lord, work these things into our hearts. We bless your name.